0: So sorry for the delay in I guess is this week twenty-one um and week twenty-one's content, but this will be a, a longer episode because of that. Um and it, it'll be broken up into a, a couple different portions. So this episode begins our developmental psych unit. Um it's pretty short because College Board um, doesn't emphasize this as much in overall percentage of particular subjects and content areas of the AP psych exam. Um, So I'm going to try and keep it short as well. (coughs) With developmental psych and what this unit is studying, it's the study of physical, mental and social changes through the human lifespan um throughout this unit there is there continues to be a big emphasis on that nature nurture debate there also is a debate between you know do we progress through a series of stages hitting particular milestones or is it re- uh relatively continuous and then lastly stability and change you know do we remain fairly stable throughout our lives or is there change um We'll return back to that debate when we get to um, personality psych. <coughs> to start with um, prenatal and physical development, when we think about you know, physical development, especially prenatally, so before birth, I want you to think maturation here, very similar to language development or language acquisition. Basically, you know, we develop relatively in the same order, nature. Nature is very heavily involved here. Some people develop faster and slower. Some things will slow this, but other things will help stimulate this. And when we think of the things that can slow down physical development or even stimulate physical development, I want you to think nurture. Um, an example of physical development post-womb or, you know, after one is born in um, thinking about maturation in terms of, well, how do we get to walking? You know, a a six-month-old isn't going to automatically get up and be like poof i'm gonna run a mile um, they're first going to lift their head then roll over then sit up then crawl then stand unassisted and finally they'll be able to walk and that's that, that maturation um, or development in terms of maturation Um, But when we think about prenatal development, so before birth, we're going to start with the germinal stage, and we begin as a zygote, which is a fertilized egg. There is rapid cell division during this stage. Um, On our chromosomes, the last pair of chromosomes will either turn into being XX or XY, and that will determine our sex. Um, Our sex is determined by the father because um, the male sex has... Um, on their last chromosome, the XY. Um, And we know that chromosomes, you know, you get one half from mom and the other half from dad. So sex will be determined by the father. This is the stage that is least vulnerable to environmental influences as the zygote, you know, develops and gets formed into the fetus um, there you will that fetus becomes more and more vulnerable to environmental influences during this stage we have the beginnings of you know genetic characteristics known as our genotypes as well as physical characteristics known as our phenotypes they begin to develop Possible areas where nature can intervene during the germinal stage. Um, I'm going to butcher this name, so please forgive me. It's called PKU, but I believe it said uh, you pronounce it by saying phenylketonium ketonuria. And what's going on here is this is a neurological impairment and an inherited disorder. And specifically what happens with PKU is the inability to produce enzymes in order to digest particular proteins. So if this is not (coughs) found at an early stage um, and a diet is changed, that can definitely interfere with um, your neuro, basically neurologically. Another potential um, time when nature can intervene is regarding, you know, gene copying um, and the rapid cell division that's happening what, during these prenatal stages. And one in particular is Down syndrome, also called trisomy 21. Um, with Down syndrome, it's not usually inherited. As I was saying before, it's likely caused by that a gene copying error. What happens with Down syndrome is potential physical growth delays as well as intellectual d- disabilities, and it's important to note these are not just the two opportunities where nature can intervene within the development of humans, um, but these are two examples. Past the germinal period, I like to turn our attention to the placenta and the great um, the significance of the placenta. Basically, whatever the mother breathes, eats, drinks could impact the course of development. Um, The placenta specifically provides nourishment and oxygen to the embryo and fetus. So it's important to note, you know, what is the mother consuming or ingesting? Because that leads us into a potential environmental influence that could harm the fetus, and we call these environmental agents teratogens. So, env- a teratogen is an environmental agent that can reach the embryo or fetus during prenatal development and causes harm. Two examples could be alcohol and tobacco. Now it's important to note that um, one of my classes asked pretty cool really good questions about teratogens, like what about other medication that the mother could be on? That would be an important conversation to have with your doctor. Um, especially, you know, if you are taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, um, it is that conversation that you should have with a doctor. Um, during pregnancy. Moving forward, um, the embryonic stage is the next stage of prenatal development. When we think about the stage, it's about two to eight weeks. Um, What's going on during the embryonic stage is the embryo is providing nourishment and oxygen by the placenta. Organs begin to form, the heart begins to beat, and the central nervous system begins to develop. That next stage is called the fetal stage, begins about nine weeks, (coughs) and then goes to birth. Uh, What's going on during this stage is that sex organs differentiate, that will be known as our phenotype, Um, toes and fingers grow, hearing develops, lungs develop, brain undergoes rapid growth and will continue to grow even after birth, and then bones and muscles develop as well going into the next bit of this presentation is social development but within children. There are four key psychologists that study social development, three of them in people, one of them in animals, Um, and well, I guess two in animals as well, but I'll get to that. Ooh, I misspoke there. Anyway, so they're all very important. Two of them I would say the first three are very, very, very important. And then the last two are still relevant. Um, And when we think about social development, it's important to know, you know, humans are social creatures and have this... Innate kind of need to belong. Um, A lot of questions kind of emerged after that statement of, well, what about COVID? Like, what's going to happen? Right now, we don't know. Um, Right now, I think what is being said is social development is impacted. A lot of times we're seeing it negatively impacted, but we don't yet have those longitudinal studies to look at the social development and impact that COVID has had on humans. Um, And so, with that being said, I posed the idea of well when you all are you know outside of college or outside of high school potentially in college this stuff could be really interesting things to study to potentially participate in one of these experiments um, but maybe even create and develop your own study surrounding the impact of COVID on social development just to get you know a further deeper understanding not just that gloss over of yes we know that COVID has impacted the social development of children and humans, but how? What are those long-term effects? We don't yet know. COVID is still very new. So the first person we're going to dive into is Eric Erickson. Uh, We're only going to talk about four important stages with Eric Erickson for children. However, we will still return back to Erickson in terms of adolescent and also adulthood development. <clears throat> when we study Eric Erickson, there are a total of eight stages, and he studies, the, they're called the eight psychosocial stages of development. Um, what Eric Erickson studies here is we go through a series of conflicts as we progress through life, um, and whether or not we succeed within that conflict can impact our socialization, but also just how we interact with people. Um, so we'll run through that. So the very first stage of Eric Erickson's psychosocial development is trust versus mistrust. Now, it's good to have a pretty solid foundation of, you know, around what time or age um, is a human that goes through these conflicts but remember it's not super super rigid here it's not like after 18 months you're automatically going into the next stage you can simultaneously experience a number of these stages at the same time um, so that that's another kind of just side note here um, and f- Hypothetically, if you quote unquote fail a stage, that could mean, (coughs) you know, your other stages are impacted, but just in general, your socialization is impacted. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't progress to the next stage. It just means that you're going to have some potential conflicts with working with others, collaborating, or even just trusting the world interacting with the world. So the very first one is trust versus mistrust. It begins during infancy and lasts to about 18 months. And if you think back to, you know, during this time, during your infant years, you are trusting a caregiver or multiple caregivers to take care of your needs because you can't do that yourself. If you don't have that trusting caregiver or multiple caregivers, you may end up viewing that world as a a very dangerous place. The next stage is autonomy versus shame and doubt. Think early childhood here, but specifically choosing to take care of your physical needs, um, making a choice in some way. Um, I like to use the example of potty training here. You know, the child begins to learn to take on that autonomous role and take care of one's own, own physical needs. If there's success here, there's this feeling of independence, like you can potentially make other choices Um, And if there's a fail here, or let's say, you know, you wet the bed while you're potty training, your parents yell at you, there's this feeling of, oh my gosh, I can't take care of my physical needs. I feel uh, an intense amount of shame or even doubting the physical needs that you need to take care of. (coughs) The next one is initiative versus guilt. Now, initiative versus guilt and autonomy versus shame and doubt are very, very similar, but with initiative versus guilt, this is very, the focus is still on choices and being independent, but it's making choices while interacting with others, but also interacting with the world. It's not just a focus on physical needs here. There's kind of a step up with the choices that one is making during this initiative versus guilt conflict. I like to call this the preschool years, but again, age is fluid during Erik Erikson's psychosocial stages. Um, What's happening during initiative versus guilt is that you're beginning to assert power and control over the world through particular interactions, specifically with playful, but also social interactions. An example could be choosing what you wear, um, that I do it stage. If there's success and you are able to successfully make choices here, even if the choices are somewhat questionable, we did an example of chocolate-covered chicken nuggets um, for like a play date that a child was coming up with. That would be that feeling of initiative if the, the caregiver, the mom or dad or you know, guardian is saying, sure, you know, go ahead, we can make these chocolate-covered chicken nuggets. If there's that incessant feeling of, you know, no, you can't do that, that choice is bad. Um, There's yelling potentially involved. It's that sense, that feeling of you failed within this conflict. You could feel that guilt over what you want is potentially unimportant, or even that choice that you decided to make in this stage is just not even good enough. (coughs) The next example during childhood years and development is industry versus inferiority. I like to think younger school age here, um, so elementary school for the most part you are this is the time of your life where you are comparing yourself with your peers And it's important to define what, what does it mean to have industry or feel industrious? What psychology likes to say here is that it's this feeling of being productive, but also hardworking. And a child who is successful in this is able to make friends, do well in school even. And if there's a failure here, you might feel like you aren't good enough when you're comparing yourselves yourself to your peers or you know your friends and you feel inferior and when we think about you know who's really playing a role here obviously we're talking about childhood development teachers though play a huge role as well as one's peers all right i'm going to take a quick pause here and then i'll be back Okay, so the next bit of this, I'm going to dive into another psychologist that studied social development in children, and that is Mary Ainsworth. When we think of Mary Ainsworth, you should automatically think attachment styles here, but also the strange situation test that began in 1965. What Ainsworth is studying will be how babies respond to the temporary absence of their mothers and that results um, to Ainsworth's three attachment styles secure attachment and then two different attachments of insecure attachment resistant and then avoidant Um, The overall general method of the strange situation test goes through a series of six different steps, um, and each step lasts about three minutes, but the big thing here is that mom and baby are placed in a strange or new environment. A lot of the examples here would be like a doctor's office in that waiting room, and there are other toys in the waiting room, you know, within that environment, there is a way or opportunity for the child to interact with the environment. Um, And then there's also a stranger. in there and the study here is well what happens once the mother leaves you know I'm going to observe the interaction between mom and baby while the mom is there but what happens when mom leaves with the baby and then what happens when mom returns and that you know leads to Ainsworth concluding with three possible attachments Um, when we think about secure attachment The big thing is with separation anxiety, basically, when the mom leaves, uh, the baby becomes distressed. Then, you know, looking at that interaction between baby and stranger in that strange situation... What the baby is mostly doing is avoiding that stranger when the mom is not there, but when the mom is present, the baby's friendly with the stranger. Then when the mom returns, we like to call this reunion behavior, the baby is generally happy and easily soothed. Um, And other notes with secure attachment it will be that the baby will explore the new environment, but does return to mom for comfort. A type of insecure attachment is resistant. When the mom leaves, the baby experiences intense distress with interactions regarding the stranger. Overall, regardless of if mom is there or gone, there is fear and avoidance. Um, Reunion behavior, what happens when mom returns. The baby will approach mom, but does resist physical contact here. And other notes will be in comparing baby that has secure attachment the baby is less willing to explore that new environment lastly we have our second type of insecure attachment and that is avoidant Um, separation anxiety when the mom leaves the baby isn't super distressed or not even distressed at all Um, regarding stranger anxiety the baby is basically fearless um, and will not avoid the stranger what happens when the mom returns, thinking of that reunion behavior, there will be literal little or no interest when the mom returns. And the important note here is that the baby is equally comfortable with mom and stranger in, in the avoidant resistant attachment style. Okay, moving on into our next psychologist that studies basically social development in children and that's Diana Baumrind. She studies parenting styles. There are a total of four. A good way to remember these parenting styles will be in basically the level of demand, but also the level of warmth uh, that the parents provide to the children. The first one is uninvolved. Um, Regarding an uninvolved parenting style, there's not too many demands on the child. The rules aren't enforced because they don't exist. So low demand. But also low warmth Um, they're not super responsive they're not affectionate uh, there's not really modeling available or even emotional support available general outcomes that a child may experience if they have uninvolved parents will be anxiety potentially being emotionally withdrawn untrusting and also unwilling to depend on others And when connecting it to Eric Erickson, if you think about the very first stage of Eric Erickson's psychosocial development is trust versus mistrust. Regarding an uninvolved parent, they don't have that trusting caregiver there to provide that support. So that could lead to them, you know, not trusting the world around them, um, being very worried about the world. The next parenting style is authoritarian. I want you to think about an authoritarian government here think lots of rules, so high demand, um, but also low warmth. This is not a super desirable parenting style, according to Baumrind. The parents tend to be quite inflexible and place a lot of responsibility on the child. They're not super great as a parent, according to Baumrind. Um, authoritarian parents have their own standard of conduct, and if a child doesn't follow that, that is not good. Um, and the child doesn't have much autonomy or choice to make their own decisions. It's the rules exist because I said so. Possible outcomes that a child could experience would be being passively dependent on someone, potentially angry, having low self-esteem, and being quite obedient. They're used to following the rules because following the rules meant that they were good. The third type is authoritative. According to Baumrind, this is the most desirable style. Uh, There is still high demand though. So rules exist, um, but there's reasoning behind the rules. Older kids will be brought into a dialogue behind particular rules. They become active agents, especially when navigating, you know, the joys of becoming an adolescent. Um, you know, curfew changes and modifications with the rules and t- different demands, demands that will take place. Um, but what's super important here on the authoritative parenting style is although there are high levels of demand, there's also high levels of warmth. So the parents are quite responsive. Um, outcomes of children tend to be happy, confident, capable and socially competent. The fourth style is permissive. Think no rules here. I like to think of Regina George's mom from Mean Girls. The I'm a cool mom, not a regular mom. There aren't boundaries. Um, If there are boundaries, the the rules are broken, um, and the child knows that they can break the rules. So low levels of demand, but high warmth. The mom is there. The parent is there always. Um, (coughs) General outcomes of children here will be lacking self-discipline, potentially being self-involved, demanding, and also insecure. Um, When we think about, you know, so what, you know, why are we studying attachment styles? It's really seeing, well, how did these have an effect on later relationships? So generally what begins for the child will be this identification of oneself. We call this their self-concept. This will be the sense of one's identity, personality, strengths, weaknesses, personal worth. That will then grow into developing one's self-esteem. Um, you know, how do we feel about who we are? Then that leads to gaining that sense of self-efficacy. How capable are you with achieving your goals? Um, what can you do? What can't you do? Having a higher self-efficacy or higher levels of self-efficacy tends to correlate with the belief that you are capable, the belief that you can you know, make this goal and then figure out how to get there. Um, and we can't really develop having develop that self-advocacy unless we've initially developed a pretty solid self-concept, and then our self-esteem. Kind of closing out our social psychologists will be Harry Harlow. Um, He is going to again study attachments, um, but really he's going to study monkeys here. Um, But (coughs) it does connect to um, other animals as well, including humans. Before Harry Harlow's study, the old theory regarding babies and why did they form attachments was in order to fulfill nourishment needs and safety needs. Harry Harlow will then study this and change this theory to... Babies form attachments to fulfill comfort and safety needs more so than nourishment needs. Basically, the so what, why do we care about Harlow is that contact is more important than food and nourishment. So what Harlow does is has a baby monkey and two different types of mothers here, and they're not real. Um, There is a wire mother that provides nourishment And then a cloth mother that doesn't so the wire mother you know you can be fed by it and the big question was well which one will the monkey choose so the monkey will every now and then go over to the wire mother in order to get fed but if he chose you know which one to hang around more uh, the monkey would choose the cloth mother why the cloth mother had comfort contact Thus, kind of concluding Harlow's conclusion of comfort, contact is more important than that nourishment or um, you know, safety needs. Lastly, we have Conrad Lorenz and familiarity. When we think of things that are familiar, it's generally things that we think of as safe. Um, how do we know who is familiar and safe? And with Conrad Lorenz, he's going to study imprinting. Um, humans do not imprint, but other animals do. For example, ducklings. And what? when imprinting happens, it has to be during this critical period, <coughs> this window that is open for animals to learn specific things. In the case of imprinting with ducklings, it would be, you know, who is their mom? Who is their caregiver? And that, you know, is that instant attachment. Humans, on the other hand, attachment processes, it's longer, it's more complex than ducklings, for example. Um, And with Conrad Lorenz's studies of animals, it kind of paved the way to identifying and studying how complex human relationships really are. And that kind of closes it out for the social development of children. We'll continue to come back to specifically Eric Erickson later on. And in the rest of this episode, I'm going to dive into the cognitive development of children. Okay, so for this almost last portion of this episode, I'm going to get into cognitive development of children. Before I get there, Um, We're going to review schemas and then identify what schema assimilation is and then schema accommodation is. In class, we went into intense detail about relating schemas to stimulus generalization and stimulus discrimination, which kind of connects the dots to our learning unit. My recommendation is to review those slides. If you need additional help or assistance with it, please let me know. Um, But with schema, to review, a schema is a mental representation of what we know. For children, their schemas are fairly simple. Um, An example of a schema that a, (coughs) a child could have for dogs will be they have four legs. Again, very similar. We, at this point, can describe dogs in a way more complex way. But for children, it's small. It's simple. It is not complex. What children will then do using these schemas, they will assimilate them. Basically, they'll use schema assimilation, which is using their mental representations to interpret a new stimulus. So for example, thinking about the the schema of a dog having four legs, let's say a child's on a walk with the parents and they see a cat. The child could call the cat a dog. When we think why, They're using the only representation that they have of an animal in a home that has four legs, and this cat fits that. In other words, this cat fits their schema, which is why they misidentify it. Now, a side note here. Schema assimilation isn't always wrong. For children, a lot of times it's incorrect because their schemas are simple but as they grow in, in complexity, their schemas do, they will not, you know, assimilate new things incorrectly or new stimuli incorrectly. It will change. So with this incorrect identification of the cat calling it a dog, the child has to change that schema. In other words, they have to accommodate their schema, which is called schema accommodation. Basically, what this is, is altering these mental representations to incorporate new information. So, most likely, they're going to create a new um, schema for a cat. Yes, they have four legs, but they also meow. Whereas dogs, yes, they have four legs, but they're also able to bark. The child will later, or will alter or accommodate their existing schema for dogs and create an entirely new one for cats. This, these both are known as schema accommodations. So they'll then assimilate again. Using these representations, they're now going to be able to interpret a new stimulus. The child is going on a walk another day and sees a cat, hears it meow, and says, that's a cat that is using schema assimilation. So it's this back and forth, you know, I'm interpreting a new stimulus. If I get it wrong, I'm going to have to accommodate it, alter it, revise it, edit it. And then I'll be able to interpret a new stimulus again, which goes back to schema assimilation. And it's this back and forth process to develop even more complex schemas. And so that leads us into one of the main uh, cognitive psychologists and that is Piaget. When we think Piaget, I want you to automatically think cognitive development in children. Um, You will learn about him more if you take any type of developmental psych class or child psych class in college. He's very, very famous. He does study schema assimilation and schema accommodation um, (coughs) and he comes up with a series of stages of cognitive development. Now, there is a major critique of Piaget. Um, It's not like we, you know, praise him wholeheartedly. Yes, he makes significant strides in coming up with the cognitive development theories However, Piaget does also underestimate when children were actually able to accomplish the tasks. When we think of a major debate in developmental psych, continuity versus stages, Piaget leans on the stages end. He kind of, you know, says if you have to acquire this specific milestone to kind of go on to that next stage, whereas he does have uh, someone who is an alternate to the cognitive development of children that I'll get to at the very end. Anyway, going into the four stages of cognitive development, you should be very familiar with these and the relative time (coughs) that they occur, according to Piaget. So it begins with the sensory motor stage and starts at birth to about two years. Um, At the early years of the sensory motor stage, a child lacks object permanence. And what object permanence is, so they'll eventually gain this cognitive milestone at the later years. But what it is, is if something disappears from one's view, you are able to, you know, you're aware of where it goes. And think peekaboo here. Before a child gains object permanence, peekaboo means their human, whoever they're, you know, playing with, potentially disappears. It can be frightening to the child, but it could also be funny, it depends. Um, and then when you know you suddenly reemerge from your hands, you appear again. The child again could be frightened or happy. It depends on them. Um, but the big thing here is sensory motor, at the later years, you acquire object permanence. Then going into the next stage, stage two, which is pre-operational, two to about seven years. The important milestones here will be developing theory of mind and symbolic thought. (coughs) Before theory of mind develops, the child enters the stage having egocentrism. This is where children start. And the big thing with egocentrism is the inability to see another's point of view, whether it's their perspective, what they're actually seeing, or even what they're thinking. Um, Then, over the preoperational stage, through the later years, the child will develop a theory of mind, which is a sense of what others are thinking or feeling. This leads to empathy, and this is where the child can infer the emotional state of someone who is injured from a game of tag um, or even left out of a game. It's that feeling of, oh, I know what you're thinking or I know what you're feeling and I feel badly or I feel happy for you, depending on what that you know situation is. Um, the other important thing that a child develops during the preoperational stage is symbolic thought. So at the earlier years during pre-operational, they're, you know, speaking, but not necessarily reading or writing. Soon though, during the later years of the pre-operational stage, letters strung together will represent words, symbolizing symbolic language. Another example of developing symbolic thought would be initially, earlier years of one's pre-operational stage, an object or an idea has a singular meaning. But then over time, they'll be able to do pretend or symbolic play. You know, pretend their stuffed animals are their friends and they'll have a tea party or they'll play school. Um, other things could be objects and ideas can represent stand-ins. Going into stage three, which is concrete operational stage, starts at about seven, to, goes about, you know, 11 or 12. <coughs> the big milestone here is acquiring logical thinking. And there are four key words that fall under the bubble of logical thinking. One is reversibility, where numbers or objects can be changed and returned to their original condition. For example, water can be frozen, melted, or even refrozen. Another example could be two plus six equals eight, rearranging them and changing the sign there, eight minus two equals six. The, you know, the letters still, they're able to reverse and reverse in a different way. The next one is conservation. This is the big thing here that will come up on the exam. The big thing with conservation is that it's this idea that objects maintain the same properties in spite of a potential appearance change. Before concrete operational stage, a child lacks conservation. So if you had two beakers of water, they were the same size. Um, The child says, you know, yes, they are, it's the same amount of water. Uh, One of the beakers is poured into a different shape or size beaker. The child watches this beaker being poured into a third beaker. Um, then is asked, you know, which one's larger? The one that is actually taller, the child will say has more water. When in reality, they both have the same. Um, This inability to conserve would not represent logical thinking. So during this concrete operational stage, a child acquires this ability of conservation. Another example of logical thinking is classification. And what that is, is the ability to group objects based on multiple properties. So it could be color, shape even. The last one is seriation. And all that is, is arranging objects in order based on a specific classification. So most of the time that'd be like numerical order or even alphabetical order. The last stage for um, cognitive development in children is formal operational thought. And when we think of formal operational, we're going to think abstract or even hypothetical thinking. And this starts around 12 and goes through the rest of your life. Um, With abstract and hypothetical thinking in the earlier years, you're able to now imagine how others view them. You can predict things. And like I said, in those earlier years of formal operational, this can lead to this idea of an imaginary audience and personal fable. (laughs) and are kind of two examples of uh, adolescent egocentrism. And it's not actually egocentrism because that's earlier with pre-operational, but it's this idea that, you know, everyone's watching um, or whatever you're going through is very, very unique. So an example of imaginary audience would be this belief that you are continuously being watched and evaluated and judged. And that leads to very self-conscious behavior and could be an actual reason as to why, in a lot of high school classes, cameras being on on a Google Meet is actually quite frightening. Um, it seems silly when you really think about it, but when you connect it to this potential cognitive thought that you're having of being you know, constantly judged and constantly evaluated, for me, it makes sense as to why a lot of you have your cameras off. Another one is personal fable. That's that belief that you are very special and unique. It can lead to one of two ways. One of them would be taking risk-taking behavior because it's that belief that none of life's difficulties or problems will affect you. Another one with personal fable could be, you know, this breakup is the worst thing in the world. No one knows how I feel. Um, When in reality, a lot of people probably do, because going through a breakup is quite normal. Now, to explain risk-taking behavior, and we're going to come back to adolescence very soon, but there's a biopsychosocial approach, and we're connecting three different realms of psychology here. A biological explanation, thinking about, well, certain areas of your brain are just not yet developed, and this is a widely accepted thing within the world of psychology. Especially regarding your prefrontal cortex, the one of the very last areas of your brain to actually develop. Um, You're unable to potentially mediate actions of your limbic system where your emotions are running high, but your planning and judgment and ability to think through things is not quite there yet. Um, Those neural connections haven't yet formed. Another explanation to risk-taking behavior could be a psychological explanation, which is that personal fable. And then lastly, we have a social approach or explanation as to why do adolescents take risks? Um, And that could be that influence of peers or peer pressure. Now to end today is another cognitive psychologist that's actually an alternate to Piaget. His name is Lev Vygotsky um he is going to focus on society and culture playing a huge role in the development of children cognitively um think nurture here one of the most famous quotes from Vygotsky is we become ourselves through others so there's a huge impact on the environment with childhood cognitive develop uh, d- development, whereas if, <coughs> if we take a look at Piaget, on the other hand, his big focus was on an individual, um, an individual growing from one milestone to the next without the focus on, well, what's the influence of their peers? What's the influence of one's culture or one's environment? And so Piaget is very stage focused, where um, Vygotsky looks at the continuity of childhood development. So he comes up with a bunch of different things, I guess I would say five key things. And the big thing overall, when we think, so what, how on earth am I going to remember Vygotsky will be the impact of one's environmental influences. And so one would be Internalization, where socials, social activities will evolve into internal mental abilities, where soon, you know, over time, children will absorb knowledge from social activities and then be able to do them independently. Another one could be self-talk, and I do this all the time. I used to make fun of my mom for talking to herself, and now I'm doing it myself all the time. And this can be out loud or internal. Basically, what children do as they develop will be talking to oneself to work things out. Um, Whether that's controlling their behavior, controlling emotions, or even working through or solving problems. Another one will then ties into self-talk, and that's dialogue and their cognitive development. Basically, they're (coughs) incorporating into their own ways of thinking, think schema here with how adults and peers talk about the world and interpret the world. If they are watching and absorbing this knowledge, their schemas will accommodate, they will change, they will be revised. And that leads into the next one, the role of arguing and show and tell. So we think here uh, with Piaget is they have to gain and acquire this theory of mind. And it happens, you know, at the later years of the pre-operational stage, so closer to seven. Lev Vygotsky argues, well, what if they're, you know, exposed to other points of view? You know, what if they go through arguments before they gain that theory of mind? they probably will be able to view the world from more than one way. Um, and think show and tell. A lot of us did show and tell when we were very, very young, potentially preschool, kindergarten years, early on. Um, and this is you know the importance where if they have interactions and see what other children like or dislike or hobbies and whatever, they are okay with it. It's okay that children have different interests than they do. And this can be exposed to them before, you know, hypothetically, they gain that theory of mind, according to Piaget. Uh, Vygotsky says if they're exposed to the show and tell early on, their cognitive development will change. That brings us into the very last thing, which is our zone of proximal development, which is the big thing with Vygotsky. And this is all about learning and learning new things where Vygotsky argues, we are currently at an actual development level where we're able to, you know, perform most tasks independently or without help. And then we have that level of potential development for that level of potential development. We can't do these tasks. Um, If we're able to do them independently, we're barely able to accomplish it. So that brings in this other zone, and it's the zone of proximal development where scaffolding plays a huge role. And Vygotsky argued that, you know, we need tasks that challenge us in order to learn. If we're just doing the simple task and we know how to do it over and over and over again, cognitively, we're not going to grow or expand. So, Vygotsky says, what needs to happen is scaffolding. In a, you know, for childhood in school, children need to be given support. Um, and over time, that support will be reduced um, as the child's cognitive development, think thinking, skill level increases. Then, They'll be able to grow and be able to reach that level of potential development. And then new scaffolds will be placed. And then that goes, you know, so on and so forth until the child, you know, fully cognitively develops. Again, the big thing with Vygotsky is we learn little from tasks that we do 100% perfectly by ourselves. We need things that challenge us as long as we're given that support to grow. Obviously, if we're given, you know, a really hard, let's say, Calc 3 problem, and we aren't even in pre-calculus, how on earth would we solve that? We need that appropriate structure, appropriate practice, or even appropriate support to get to that level of potential development. And that's a big thing with Vygotsky. Um, my recommendation is in Schoology, if you haven't yet done that Piaget practice, you'll find it in the class activities folder for unit six. And in the next episode we'll talk about um, adolescence and adulthood and aging. Thank you for listening. <laughs>